This is no April Fool's joke. Our March membership campaign was so successful that we're extending it through the entire month of April. Enjoy 50% off the regular monthly or annual membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code NOFOOLING, one word, to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a limited time offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code NOFOOLING to receive 50% off. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of DSR. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. We are delighted to be joined today by the smart and insightful Dahlia Lithwick, uh, who is a legal writer and commentator extraordinaire for um, uh, Slate, for uh, the Amicus uh, podcast, uh, 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 and uh, um, is one of our favorite guests. So welcome back, Dahlia. Thank you for having me back, David. So there's so much to discuss, really. I, I could just sort of say, talk about legal issues on your mind, and then 30 <laughs> minutes from now, I'll just say goodbye to everybody. Uh, but let's let's start with the ever-fascinating uh, Clarence Thomas, who uh, continues to remind us that there are no uh, ethical standards for the Supreme Court, who seems to be shocking us nonetheless the most recent instance being this uh set of revelations about travel luxury travel on mega yachts and private jets with a curious right-wing financier uh who uh is associated with various organizations that have issues before the court um how do you how do you see this? Uh, is this just more left wing outrage that will uh, echo for a moment in the Twitterverse and then disappear? You know, a week ago, I think I believed it was nothing, I, or not nothing. It's clearly something. But there's been so many somethings reported about Clarence Thomas that does tend to sort of bounce around the Twitter sphere, and nothing changes. In fact, I think my headline last week was, and nothing's going to change. Uh, it's kind of been salient. It's landed in a, a big way. There's some pretty stunning numbers that the Washington Post uh, showed some polling numbers that reflect that this actually has landed very poorly for Justice Thomas in the court and that Republicans, uh, despite their incapacity to be outraged about Donald Trump, are really pretty horrified by this as well. In other words, it's not just 
grumpy liberals who don't like Thomas's decisions. So this is a pretext to get rid of him. It feels like across the boards, this crosses lines for people. And I think it's clearly the moment in which folks like Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who've been saying this for years and years and years, right, um, are pressing their advantage and, you know, having hearings about it and kind of trying to force ethics codes onto the court. So I actually think it might be, in some sense, the straw that, if not breaks the camel's back, at least starts to kind of penetrate uh, the public consciousness that we have allowed this to go unchecked for too long. Well, that's that's interesting. Because, you know, I mean, his wife was one of the organizers and funders of a coup against the United States. And, you know, that would have seemed to be kind of a big deal to me. And, you know, he there's a lot of stuff he didn't report over the years. But how, do, how does it manifest itself as something? I mean, Sheldon Whitehouse or the Senate, they, they have a bunch of hearings. But, you know, they, 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 they can't really do anything about it. They, they can't impeach him without the House, which that they, they're not going to get, uh, or without two-thirds of the Senate, which they're not going to get. So uh, what, what could they do? Well, here's one tell, and I think it's going to seem <laughs> so inside the beltway that it's not a tell, but don't forget that the Judicial Conference, which is the federal court's policymaking body, right? Even before this story dropped, and some would suggest because this story was about to drop, they quietly adopted new rules that was gonna we're gonna close this um, loophole. And now, as Justice Thomas said in his hilarious um, statement, saying like, "I don't know that I just asked a guy and he told me this was fine," but now he's going to abide by the new rules. So I, I want to be clear that in terms of having an effect, it already has. You have a a, a policy making body that is very very loath to tell the court what to do. Uh, that quietly closes the loophole and changes the rules in advance of the story coming out. So that's, it seems tiny, but it's something. It means that even if the Supreme Court itself is incapable of feeling shame or that the eight other justices are incapable of inducing shame in Clarence Thomas, uh, at least you have a rules change that happens quietly. That's not nothing. Um, but I think that what we're now seeing is a lot of energy behind the idea that yeah, and this is what I think uh, Senator Whitehouse and others in Congress are pushing. Look, if the court is not going to create enforceable, meaningful ethics rules and standards, uh, then we're going to foist it upon them. And there's huge separations of power questions of whether this can be foisted upon them. But I think that this in conjunction with the Dobbs leak, which happened almost a year ago right now, and in conjunction with, as you said, the fact that Clarence Thomas sat on a case in which his wife had material interests around January 6th, I think that it is possible that the public sense that, no, this is a bridge too far, um, might uh, burble into the court kind of choosing to, to enforce its own ethics rules. And, and one thing, um, I think Adam Cohen had a good piece about this in the Times this week. We forget uh, that Abe Fortas was forced off the Supreme Court for a lot less 
it's not that nothing ever happens. It's that once there is enough like public outrage and horror, and in Fortas's case, uh, Chief Justice Warren participated in that ouster, uh, you can actually see changes. We just happen to be in a moment of sort of shruggy emoji where we think nothing can change, and, and sometimes nothing changes until it does. You, you, you uh, sort of uh, hinted at what my next question was going to be, because uh, the the chief justice is supposedly an institutionalist who loves the court and wants to protect it and preserve it. Uh, he says that a lot. Uh, he tries to defend it periodically. Um, and yet, you know, crickets. You know, he, he led a... a, a I don't, I don't, I don't know. An ineffective investigation into the Dobbs leak. He hasn't really done anything about the Ginny Thomas uh, issue, and he certainly doesn't seem, you know, to be leading on this thing. Is there a certain point at which he's got to act, or is is he likely to remain inert? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's really instructive to go back and look at what it was that galvanized then uh, Chief Justice Warren, who was a liberal, to help oust Abe Fortas uh, at, at Nixon's Justice Department's urging, right? They were literally lobbying the Chief Justice, you know, showing up in limos outside the court and saying, here's all this material, you know, we're going to charge him criminally and we're going to, you know, embarrass your court. So I, I think that it's useful to see say, maybe in response to your question, that there's this ethos that, you know, well, John Roberts isn't the boss of the other justices. You know, it's nine separate law firms and he has no enforcement power over them. Really, he only has sort of managerial and administrative power. But in history, we've seen chief justices say, and now it's enough because it's bad for the court. And whether John Roberts is prepared to go down with the ship, and I agree completely thus far, he sort of makes noises about how you know bad this is, but he's by and large prepared to go down with the ship. And maybe parenthetically, I'd say that he's been willing to say in opinions like, no, we don't do this on the shadow docket and we don't do this in a like cheesy, lame way. So sometimes he sides, right? In fact, that was his Dobbs uh, decision. He does side with the institutional interests over his own personal ideological interests. So he's been known to do that. But I think you're exactly right. You know, if anything is going to galvanize him to do a thing, and then I almost want to say query what the thing is, because he's certainly not going to force Thomas off the court. And if it's a matter of saying, okay, I guess I should seriously the public desire for us to actually have enforceable ethics rules and to make my colleagues disclose when they take half million dollar gifts from people with interests uh, at the court. I don't know if he is brave enough to do that. I think he's probably as scared of Clarence Thomas as you and me are. Well, you know, as as roiling as it is to follow the Clarence Thomas case or to think of the uninvestigated nooks and crannies of the Kavanaugh case or some of the other issues that have led people onto the court recently. It's even more disturbing to think about the way this court and courts subordinate to it have stopped using the law as the guideline in the decisions that they make. Uh, Clearly, we saw this in the Dobbs case. 
but most recently, we've seen this set of decisions around the birth control pill, first by this Justice uh, Kaczmarek uh, in in Texas, and, and more recently, uh, today, the day of this recording, um, by the Fifth Circuit, that seemed to be based entirely on the theory of the law is whatever I want it to be. I mean, it's kind of over-the-top judicial activism of the kind that you saw the Republicans uh, condemning, uh, and now they are embracing it as the signature of this era in the federal courts. I think it's really hard, David, to overstate how chilling this Fifth Circuit order is. Um, it holds itself out as some kind of compromise between Judge Kaczmarek's sort of initial completely bonkers uh, district court order from last Friday night. And then all it essentially does is say, but he went too far going back to 2000, but everything else is fine. And these plaintiffs who are just a bunch of doctors like zealots who they're the, the whole theory of standing in this case is that they might someday have to treat somebody who has uh, bad side effects from uh, Mifeprostol. Uh, and so therefore, uh, Mifepristone, sorry. So therefore they're going to, have like you know life-altering uh sad feelings and despair it's such a bananas theory of standing and it's been ridiculed across the boards including by for a former Scalia clerk the whole thing is insane much less invoking the Comstock Act like now we're going to talk about a 1873 uh federal law that wouldn't let you put smut in the mail and they're taking seriously the possibility to that anything that is placed in the mail, regardless of intent, can be, I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. So let's not like belabor it. But I think your larger point connects back to Thomas in one sense, in two senses, maybe. One is that Thomas never believed in stare decisis, right? Scalia, Scalia used to always say, you know, I'm an originalist, I'm not a nut. Uh, and that was in reference to Clarence Thomas, who just doesn't believe that anything is a binding precedent on the court. And that's the world, as you just described, where we now live in, right? Nothing nothing is the law and you can't rely on anything. It's what the justices feel at a given moment, which, you know, for those of us who understand how law works is the cornerstone of how this thing happens. But the other thing, and this is subtler, but I think you're flicking at it, is the kind of performance of grievance and outrage that is a Clarence Thomas hallmark has now become the way that lower court judges audition for the Supreme Court. So it's not enough to be a super conservative Federalist Society, you know, hatched in a lab by Leonard Leo um, judge. What you have to do is what Judge Matthew Kaczmarek did in this case, which is perform your rage and your horror and use unborn humans as a word and use chemical abortion as your terminology and dismiss entirely the interests of millions and millions of pregnant people because what matters is the feelings of a handful of doctors. Like this is a way of taking kind of grievance and outrage and performing it at such a high level that you get noticed so that you can be someday on the Supreme Court too. And it's really chilling 
both because, as you said, it has nothing to do with originalism and it has nothing to do with judicial humility. It's textbook judicial activism. But it's also scary because it's a one-way ratchet. <laughs> In order to be the next guy who gets to be this guy, you have to be even more untethered from reality, from science, from fact, from the law than the last guy. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a race to the most extreme, crazy iterations of performance of grievance. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of stunning development that you could have a ruling on abortion a year after Dobbs that made Dobbs look legally sensible um, when it wasn't. Uh, that is so outlandish in everything from the issue of standing to its dismissal of science uh, and the long track record of this drug to its uh, dismissal of the law and precedent to its dismissal of the public interest. Um, and then to have the Fifth Circuit go along and sort of say, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um now everybody sort of says, "Oh, the Fifth Circuit—they're crazy," but you know they're they're a circuit court in our federal system. We've uh, only got what thirteen of them. They're you know, I mean, they're it's a it's a uh, as high a level as you get before you get to the Supreme Court. It it, it suggests to me that the 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 Supreme Court is on the verge of, thanks to this conservative majority, transforming itself from a judicial body to a kind of right-wing mood ring that, that you know, that just, re just reflects whatever is the prevailing feeling and seeks to find legal arguments to justify the feeling. I mean, entirely upside down and backwards. I love right wing mood ring may be the name of our band. Uh, that's so good. And it's like, I think you've totally identified, you know, after last term, I remember writing uh, several times, there's no doctrine anymore. There's just feelings. And if you look at any of the big blockbuster cases last term, what you got was some version of but this makes me feel yucky. And whether it was, right, Coach Kennedy, who wanted to pray after football games in violation of the First Amendment, it made Justice Gorsuch feel yucky uh, that he wasn't allowed to do that. It makes uh, uh, Clarence Thomas feel yucky uh, that you have to get licensure to carry your gun in New York because I don't like it that I have to go before um, somebody and justify my need for a gun. It made the court feel yucky that the EPA had regulatory powers. There's no actual doctrine put in place. There's just... This kind of feels bad. And in the world of justice as feelings ball, as you said, what you get is no guidance about how the next case is going to turn out. There's no law. We don't I don't know what the law is after the Coach Kennedy case. I don't know what the major questions doctrine is after the EPA case. I have no idea what the law is after Dobbs or after Bruin. All I know is if the justices feel that something makes them feel sad inside in their tummies then it's not lawful anymore. And you're exactly right. That is reach, reaches its zenith in these medication abortion cases where 
you have a judge who's literally saying, I feel yucky about medication abortion and this handful of doctors feel yucky. And that's going to supersede 23 years of medical science and fact finding by the FDA and tens of millions of people who need these drugs and all of their physicians. Because it's sort of, I think it's like feelings vigilantism. It's really strange. Yeah, and, and also that I, this lower court judge, I'm going to do it for the whole country. For the whole country, for every doctor and every pregnant person. And this is the other really, I think, important footnote here because you started with this really important point. This ruling in the medication abortion cases makes Dobbs look sane. But let's go back and look at Dobbs where the court promised us what? States' rights, right? Federalism. Justice Kavanaugh promised us in his very important chin-stroking concurrence that this in no way burdens interstate travel. This in no way burdens blue states' ability to make their own choices. Well, it's not even a year later. And it turns out that too was a lie. And so part of the thing you have to look for is you know, they lied in their confirmation hearings about what they would do in abortion cases. They lied in the SBA cases about what they were going to do going forward on abortion. They lied in Dobbs, in the pages of Dobbs, about what was coming next. And with each lie, the goalposts move and we do the more radical thing. And it is very clear that both Judge Kazmarek's decision and this Fifth Circuit decision are sowing the seeds of revitalizing the Comstock Act revitalizing uh, personhood amendments, federal personhood amendments. This is all being planted here. And yet they keep telling us like, no, this is just, you know, the next obvious tiny, teeny little step uh, post job. So I don't know, at some point you're Lucy and football and Charlie Brown. And I think saying like, well, this is going to be moderated because Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett really care about the institution of the court. I have seen very little evidence of that. You know, particularly if they let lower courts lead and then they sort of, yeah, I mean, we haven't seen how they're going to respond to it. But, you know, throughout the Trump era, periodically people would write things to try to remind everybody that we're supposed to be a nation of laws and not of men because we didn't, uh, you know, want to place the president above the law. Um, but, you know, just without belaboring the point about the mood ring, this is a this is a, a, a judicial movement that places the mood before the law uh, and, in fact, undermines the law coast to coast. And, um, you know, we can give a couple of examples that come out of uh, the uh, abortion rulings since Dobbs or legal case le- uh, 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 laws being written since Dobbs, like uh, Idaho's decision to ban women from traveling out of state to seek an abortion, which is hideous on its face, but it's also unconstitutional. It's it it you know, but they don't care. They write laws that are unconstitutional. And another example has come up this week of a of a of a kind of law that's unconstitutional, which again is happening across the red part of America, which is uh uh passing these what they call uh, uh, Second Amendment sanctuary laws, which say 
We place the Second Amendment in such high esteem that any law that forces people, to, you know, that says there are restrictions on guns will not be enforced here. That we in this state will not enforce the federal law, despite, you know, all of our history suggesting they can't do that. And so, as bad as these decisions are, as bad as, you know, it is for Thomas to be corrupt. It seems the more dangerous thing that's happening now is that the rule of law is being washed away in these places and replaced by the mood, but by a right-wing um, uh, sort of surge of, of th- largely theocratic feelings. Um, and uh, the, 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 the higher courts are letting it happen. I think that's exactly right. And I think um, I used the word vigilantism with some purpose, because if you think about a through line that you've just identified, which is, I don't care what the law is, I'm going to tell you what the law is, and you make me stop, right? And that's Kyle Rittenhouse. That's SB8, right? The, The vigilante bill that was passed in Texas that said, doesn't matter if Roe v. Wade is this, the law of the land, you can get huge, huge uh, uh, civil uh, 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 payoffs if you turn in the Uber driver, right, who dropped somebody at a clinic. And I think that's the spirit of some of these book bans, right, that one parent gets to decide for the class. Um, you know, uh, in Virginia, they were talking about putting cameras in the classroom so that teachers could be um, surveilled. And that is one parent complaining. Cameras to make sure their students were not reading books. Exactly. You know, to, to, to be to have one parent say we're, we're no longer looking at, uh, you know, this piece of sculpture because I'm offended. And I think in a weird way, what though that spirit that you're describing, which I just call vigilante justice. Right. That's the Fugitive Slave Act. That's the Wild West. That's choose your own ending. If you say something is unlawful, um, it's unlawful and make me stop. And this is Greg Abbott saying, I'm going to pardon somebody who willfully went into a crowd uh, to hurt and said he was going to do that to hurt protesters. And I'm going to give him a pardon. And I think that you're exactly right. It has two effects. One, it destabilizes all confidence in the rule of law. Why would anyone believe in rules uh, when they're not being enforced, right? Or they're being selectively enforced where everybody gets to pick how something's going to go. But more urgently, I think it really kind of fosters this sense that if you can't trust the government to enforce laws, then I guess you should pick up a gun and enforce it yourself. You should be the one, right? This is the nature of stand your ground laws and castle laws. I can't trust the cops to keep my house safe, so I should be able to shoot somebody if they put their foot on my property. And I think that the whole purpose of this moment, this sort of legal mood ring that you're describing, is in some sense not just to get these these outcomes that you, you know, that, that the book bans and the... Um, you know, abortion bans and the being able to collect bounties if you turn in somebody performing an abortion. But I think the long-term effect is to destabilize everyone's confidence in the rule of law, to convince everybody that I don't know what's going on at that polling place, but I know it's bad, so I'm going to go show up with a gun 
on the back of my truck and enforce it myself. And I just think it is anathema, as you said, to a system of rule of law, you know, constitutional democracy to empower everybody to just decide what the rules are and bring in a gun to enforce them. So yes, it's a deeply scary moment. And th this pattern is repeating itself across the boards. And, you know, we're horrified at what we just saw in the Tennessee legislature, but patterns of lawless conduct that is trussed up as democracy or governance, I think is happening in every state house and we're just not clocking it all the time. Well, yeah, and I don't think we're connecting the dots as perhaps we should, because as you bring up Kyle Rittenhouse or you bring up uh, Governor Abbott deciding to pardon this guy, uh, essentially is saying we're not going to apply the law to people who share our ideological views. However, you know, you have North Carolina and, you know, other states considering the death penalty for women who seek an abortion, uh, you have, um, uh, you know, uh, this, uh, this Idaho law and other laws. And essentially what they're saying is we are going to enforce the law against those who don't agree with us and waive the law in the cases of those who do agree with us, um, which is, you know, the dysfunction one would expect in the worst sort of totalitarian state. I mean, it's Jim Jordan investigating Alvin Bragg, right? It's saying simultaneously that no infraction of any law ever could possibly be applied to Donald Trump because he is always and forever going to be above the law in every jurisdiction. And at the same time, somebody who is elected to enforce known written laws, right? And that is supposedly indisputable, right? That he is conscripted to enforce the law as written, which is presumably what he's done. It will be tested by a jury in New York. And that's lawless. And I think it's a complete subversion of, you know, the law applies to everyone across the boards. It's exactly what you're saying, which is, no, the law is the thing we use to persecute the people we hate. And it is the thing that we use to exculpate the people we love regardless of what the action is. And you're exactly right. This is not, you can't have a system of laws if you believe that they only can be used and weaponized against people who don't agree with you. Yeah, it's an important point. And I think, you know, when we go from lock her up to Donald Trump can commit serial treason and crimes and but must not be touched from it to then, you know, we have to go after the Biden family for completely made up crimes you know, that we think of that as just sort of the ebb and flow of the nightly news and Fox versus MSNBC and so forth. But it is actually being institutionalized across the Republic in a whole host of other areas that are deeply, deeply disturbing. Uh, we only have a couple minutes here and we haven't really dwelled on any of the Trump case developments, which is just as well because times it gets a little bit uh, tedious. Um, let me just throw two at you kind of quickly. One is, um, uh, and again, it's going to be very interesting to watch how this plays out, but it, 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 it looks like um, uh, Jack Smith and his team, as they zero in on, on the documents case, 
uh, have at least some theory that that uh, documents were withheld by Trump, but may actually have been then shared with other people. Um, you know, it, it's slowly but surely, it looks like Trump has checked every box um, in this case and uh, for, for, for it to be a crime and possibly a crime that's compounded by obstruction. So violation of the Espionage Act plus the obstruction um, but but I, I think it's interesting that it's playing out in juxtaposition to everybody being very outraged at the leak of a bunch of documents um, by apparently a young um, um, member of the National Guard uh, who uh, the documents were not as highly classified as the documents that Trump had. There were not as many documents as the documents that Trump had. And if, in fact, Trump shared his documents just as this guy shared his documents, the cases are more similar than I think any of the Trumpy defenders will want them to be. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it it's two points. You know, one, it ties together two things we've been talking about this last little bit. One is it's interesting that um, without knowing what it is that... Um, Alvin Bragg has, the second uh, the indictments were announced, the case was seen as nothing, right? Uh, which kind of goes to, we don't even need to know what the merits are. <laughs> we just, you know, we want to exonerate him regardless. And I think that's really hard to do when you have, and this is kind of the, the second point, um, massive loss of institutional trust. And I think it, in some ways, you know, the, these, this new revelation of, of leaked documents goes to what happens when the law is only for suckers or, you know, the law doesn't apply to me and my team and my values, which has been the message of Donald Trump, right, from the jump. And so I think it's just an interesting problem because I think it's, it's there's a sense that you know, national security doesn't matter as much as, you know, winning and uh, being on your team. And that idea of the loosening of all the kind of aggregated soft norms that bound us around how to conduct ourselves for a long time, uh, the idea that institutions are only as strong as our willingness to believe that you keep secrets for some reason. That's the stuff that I think we're not probing. We're always kind of gazing upward at the scandal happening at the top without seeing that these institutions, whether it's military secrets or voting rights or, um, you know, abiding by the rules of, you know, criminal law, all of that is only as robust as our willingness to believe in the values that undergird them. And I think that what we are seeing, at least thus far in this leaks case, is just a sense that LOL, nothing matters. And that scares me a ton because I think it's being messaged, not just from Donald Trump, but from all his defenders. Yeah. And well, it'll be interesting because I think the defenders are going to have a test, right? Because, you know, Jack Smith may you know, indict him for these crimes uh, or 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 the Justice Department may follow Jack Smith's recommendation and indict him for these crimes. Or they may on the January 6th issues and are they going to defend them on those issues and are those going to become 
dividing line issues as well. And, you know, I think the, the, the thrust of this conversation today, which is an important one, is that none of these things exist in a vacuum and they all have knock-on effects that go throughout our society. And, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, the majority in the Tennessee legislature saying, oh, we can t- kick those two black guys out because they don't agree with us. We'll make up some ruling re- reason for it. Um, is as just as much a manifestation of what we're talking about as anything else is. Sherilyn Eiffel, uh, former head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, wrote a like bone-chilling piece for us at Slate a few weeks ago and then came on um, my podcast this weekend to talk about it a little bit. And one of the things she said that I can't shake off is that while we're all focused on Tennessee, and by the way, Tennessee matters because it is straight-up vote suppression, right? It's saying that the people who voted for these people uh, have no voice, and, and that's important. But she linked it up with, you know, what Mitch McConnell effectuated in Kentucky, where he somehow reimagined the role. So if something happens to him, he can only be replaced by a Republican. And what's happened in Georgia, trying to strip Fonnie Willis of her prosecutorial real powers and just boom, 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 kind of the way you did around abortion a, a little while ago, that trying to focus on what you and I used to think of as classic vote suppression, right? <laughs> you know, voter ID or or gerrymandering or even the independent state legislature theory. You know, your vote doesn't matter because we make stuff up. Even that is kind of belated because now we're in an era where simply taking away power from elected officials, right? Talk of impeaching the newly elected Wisconsin Supreme Court justice requiring super majorities, right, in order to get something on the ballot. Like, this is a way of suppressing democracy. And the well, or, I, or going back to McConnell, denying the president the right to nominate a Supreme Court justice. Exactly. It's, it's a playbook that works, and it partly works, David, because it's kind of wonky and invisible. And I think it, it, it makes your point, like, we're not connecting dots. And so to be horrified by what happened in Tennessee this week is right and correct, but to not see all the ways it's happening in our backyards is the problem. And I think that you're exactly right. It's not just a failure of the rule of law. It's a failure of democracy itself. And it's democracy being weaponized to eat itself alive under our very noses. And that's the thing that I can't unsee now that she's brought it to my attention. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's, no, it's, it's, it's deeply disturbing because, you know, y- you can lose democracy while you're still having elections. Exactly. You know, and, and while you're still going through the motions of democracy, it just gets weaker and weaker. And a lot of what has happened in the past several years is damage that it's very hard to undo. And, you know, I mean, we talked about it before this Supreme Court could be with us in this, you know, sort of 6-3 structure for many years to come. It could enable this for a long time to come. And in some ways, maybe this is the really important thing to say about Clarence Thomas and his fancy trips with Harlan Crow. I think the scandal is not that he took those trips. I don't care about 
Harlan Crow's sculpture garden, I think we got really distracted by Clarence Thomas says he likes to hang out in Walmart par parking lots, but really he's flying around, you know, on a super jet. I think all of those are distractions. I think the thing that is the nut of that story is that Clarence Thomas <laughs> sat on the Supreme Court and was the fifth vote for Citizens United, for Shelby County, for Brnovich, for Rucho. These are all the cases that make it harder and harder for democracy to work, harder and harder for one person's vote to matter. He sat on the 6-3 supermajority. Don't, don't forget Bush v. Gore. And Bush v. Gore. And so I just think, like, the story isn't that Clarence Thomas is grifting off his Supreme Court gig. I don't care what Clarence Thomas does. I just don't care. But I care that Harlan Crow is part of a consortium that has bought and sold the Supreme Court. And that that Supreme Court has made democracy, as you and I knew it, less and less operative operable and that's the story right and has cleared the way for its erosion at the circuit court level at the lower level within state legislatures uh within all legislative bodies where one side gets control uh and seeks to cut the other side out of it i mean we we haven't talked about for example gerrymandering here um and yet uh, in both Tennessee and in Wisconsin, you know, that's a, a, an enormous issue. And these things have all been happening over time. And none of them have been happening by accident. And I think, you know, that's the final point that I, that I think is important to make here. The Harlan Crow, Leonard Leo crowd, the Koch brother crowd, they have been working towards these goals state legislature by state legislature, court by court, voting rights decision by voting rights decision, gerrymandering decision by gerrymandering decision for 30 years. This is not new. It's not yesterday's case. It is, it is literally, to paraphrase Nixon, a cancer on our judicial system, cancer on our democracy, that's stage four. This is not early stage. And, and maybe to wrap it in a bow, it's my friend Mike Podharzer said in his newsletter this week, it's, you know, the Stringer Bell theory, like maybe don't take notes. The fact that there's a portrait of these guys sitting around in their chairs and their Adirondack chairs, smoking cigars, all of the operators in the scheme you just described and there's no shame in the fact that it's right uh mark pauletta and leonard leo and clarence thomas and harlan crow like it's it's a huge huge rigged system <laughs> and they don't feel bad because they painted a picture of it so there it is if you can't you know <laughs> if you can't commit it to to, to oils <laughs> and feel no shame, then we have to really recognize that this is much bigger than Clarence Thomas's travel cigars. No, those, no question. Those are victory cigars, and that picture is the Washington crossing the Delaware of authoritarianism in the United States. Um, and, you know, as ever, for some reason, I really like talking to you, Dahlia, and every <laughs> single time I go away and wish I drank. You know, I could just go... <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> it's pre- it's pre- it's pretty grim. Um, but My I hope- teenage sons say this to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they're lucky to get your wisdom, and so are we. Uh, hopefully, you'll come back again soon. Just in case the sun shines too brightly in the sky, and we want to offset that uh, with a little dose of reality. Until then, thanks a lot, Dahlia. Thanks to everybody for listening. Um, for more on what we are doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you like what we are doing, click membership uh, and uh, become a member and support what, these kind of conversations. Till then, bye bye.